But then again, here he is personal and here he is righteous and here he is true. And yet when you look at life, you see so much that is not right. And even for us believers, it is a temptation to us to fall away from the living God who yet every day shows himself to us through his creation because the manner of which life is carried out has so much that is unrighteous in it. So much of trial that when we are tried and when unrighteousness comes our way, every time it is actually a temptation to fall away from God and to go into some kind of false religion in which he is impersonal. The text that we have before us this morning will certainly challenge us and encourage us out of that light. I just want to divide it very simply as we look at two chapters together this morning There's the trial and kind of the success of Joseph, and then you've got, oh, these different trials that he goes through, false accusation and neglect. So let's join our hearts together and spend a few minutes together considering the life of Joseph and even more how God works through so much unrighteousness to show himself. Join me back in chapter 39 of Genesis. Let me begin in verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the Ishmaelites, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now, his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house. And all that he owned, he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house, And over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. We'll stop there and kind of cover this first part of Joseph's success down in Egypt. What's remarkable to all of us upon reading this is how powerfully Joseph overcomes his betrayal. We looked at this last week. His brothers had planned actually to kill him. So deeply did they hate him over the favor that he received from his father and over the dreams that he received and perhaps quite foolishly, told these brothers of his future exaltation over them that they literally planned to kill him until he was rescued by the older brother and eventually sold to a bunch of slave traders traveling through the land who then took Joseph, I suppose, traveling bound by his hands, walking through the hot sands of Gaza on the way down to Egypt, trailing a camel. 
and how quickly this boy of 17 overcomes the betrayal of his own family. We learn that he is purchased by a powerful man. His name is Potiphar. You never get to choose your own name in life, do you? And he is given two titles here in verse 1. He is called the officer of Pharaoh and also the captain of the guard. Combining those two titles, the words that are used by Moses as he composes this account that are also used other places in Scripture, draws a picture of Potiphar that is pretty impressive. He would have been responsible to protect Pharaoh and Pharaoh's family from assassins. He would have been responsible to ferret out the men who would have been in the court with their intrigues trying to supplant or, or take power. And this man would have been responsible to protect the integrity of the court. We know from one of the words that he was responsible for the executions. So Potiphar sort of combines various elements of our own culture of part Secret Service, part CIA, part FBI, with the final role of being over the penitentiary system to incarcerate and to execute. This is a powerful, intelligent, trusted man. And success under such a powerful man, such an important man, made Potiphar so successful. Look back at verse 6. He left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. That's intelligence. Recognizing the kind of skills and the blessings upon the whole household, he gave it over to Joseph. So evidently, Joseph not only came overwhelming betrayal, but he prospered. Once the shock of being betrayed by his brothers was done, he absorbed that, thought about it, felt it to every degree, traveled to the bottom of it, and came back up and trusted in God's good and wise purpose in it all, which he could not know at the time. So we go here in this passage from Joseph as a boy with no skills to Joseph as a young man with a lot of skills in the house of his master. Now he would have started off as a slave with the most menial of tasks, having to learn to speak in Egyptian. And he would have done all those tasks with excellence. Then he worked at tasks that were increasingly more important to the success of his master's house. And he applied himself to those until finally, after a number of years, Potiphar, the only thing he cared about was which fork do I use at dinner? Joseph became such a valuable ally to him. He was looking always for opportunities to prosper his master. And he would have learned everything he could do until finally he was overseeing servants, slaves, everything that was materially in this great man's house. Perhaps Joseph said something similar to this. I will study my master until I know him better than he knows himself. 
I will study his interests and I will make them my own. And I will perform every task allotted to me, not as unto Potiphar, but as unto the Lord. And thus my slavery will not be to my master, but my slavery will be unto the Lord. In other words, if God wants me to be his slave in Egypt, then I will be his slave here. I will be his slave in Egypt. Interesting, isn't it, how when we have so much freedom of work, we can choose the job we take. Almost always that's the case. We can choose the spouse we marry. That's almost always the case. And yet once, because of the freedoms that we have, we are in those freedoms, we tend to imagine that God has not put us in those places and We can grow bitter, we can look for shortcuts and live by them. Joseph is a remarkable man for being able to come up out of the the downward death spiral of, of so much betrayal in his life and to come back up and to offer himself and to make of himself a valued servant. Now let's not miss the other side of the equation. Where does he get his help from? Would you look back at verse 2? The Lord was with Joseph. Look back at verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. And then down to verse 5. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned. Now, how is it then that Potiphar knew that it was the Lord who was blessing his house? There were no special indications that it was the Lord. And the only explanation that makes any sense is that Joseph was always and constantly giving credit to God. Always saying, well, my my master, the Lord, caused this to prosper. My master, the Lord, was the one who brought the rain. My master, the Lord, was the one who gave me the idea to apply the servants into the southern fields rather than the northern fields. Uh, The Lord was the one who sent this particular man to us. The Lord was the one who gave me these plans. I give the credit to the Lord. He was always, therefore, crediting the Lord. So that Potiphar, who was, you know, the, the guy who had lots of gods as an Egyptian, accepted one more, Joseph's God, who brought blessing into his house. Amazing. One man gave the following picture. I think it's, it's helpful to us. He writes this. One can picture Potiphar discussing the phenomena in the officer's mess. I cannot explain it, he might have said, but it's ever since I made this fellow Joseph my manager. He's a Hebrew slave I picked up for a song from some Ishmaelites. But what a prize! He's the finest manager I've ever set eyes on. And honest. I've never known an honest slave. Few honest men. And no honest officials. But the fellow is the absolute soul of integrity. He attributes it to his God. Some strange God named Jehovah. I wish all my slaves worshipped him. And somehow Joseph considered being sold as a slave by his own family into it, recognized that this 
must be God's best for me. How did he do that? The Lord will turn this to my good, the situation that I'm in. If I serve him at this job, he must have assured himself over and over and over again. He had this day-to-day stability in him. He wasn't measuring whether God was his God based on day-to-day circumstances that fluctuate. They go up and they go down. And if you evaluate God based on the circumstances of life, God is as fickle as the weather. He must have learned through the depth of his brother's depravity to trust God in dark circumstances. Dark circumstances. God is good. So really, we have to admit, at the end of verse 6, by the end of this wonderful little six-verse segment, Joseph is a remarkable man. And he's probably just mid-twenties by the time this occurs. He allows betrayal to be turned into success. It is success that allows him to spiritually prosper in terrible circumstances. The word successful is helpful for the rest of us because it's used a couple of other places in Scripture that are applicable to you and to me. Listen carefully for the word success in the following quotes. Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Or, Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does he succeeds. Prospers, same word. This has to have then been reflected in Joseph's life, what he knew of God, what he knew of his word. He repeated to himself, he went over to himself, and he meditated on it day and night. And the word guarantees you will have success if you do that. Corey Ten Boom becomes an example of all of us, for all of us. She is at Ravensbrück death camp during the Holocaust. All hope is gone. People told her the only way you get out of the Ravensbrück death camp is through the crematorium smokestack by being burned. And she did not put her trust in what people said, but rather in what God says, and she held Bible classes with the prisoners. Who knows how many put their trust in Christ as a result. Remember the time just a few years ago, 2001, Missionary in Peru named Jim Bowers is in a plane with his, do- with his wife and six-year-old child, and she's pregnant. And the Peruvian Air Force, for some truly unknown reason, gets a tip from the American CIA and shoots into his plane. Do you remember this? And the bullets come in, and they hit his wife, and they hit his son, 
They graze him and they graze the pilot. Pilot lands the plane, but his wife, Ronnie, dies. As does his six-year-old son. I think actually his six-year-old son lives. If I'm not mistaken, but his wife and the baby in her womb die. This is big news of the time. Back in 2001, 15 years ago now. On national TV, a month later, Diane Sawyer asks him, as tens of million are tuned in to the show Primetime. And this guy, a humble, quiet man, is asked the question, what kind of God requires the killing of a little baby to fulfill his purposes? Jim answers, I'm not sure I can fully answer your question, but my baby is now in heaven with the Lord, and that's where the real life is anyhow. Slap that. In humility. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There can be no exaltation, no lifting up until there be a prior putting down. Joseph was a humble man, had been put down, and now the exaltation is seen to, we understand it to be from the Lord and the glorious purposes of God in his life. This is our first part of our message. The success of Joseph, it's overwhelming, it's magnificent, it's glorious. But sure enough, next comes the accusation against Joseph. Let's read the next section together, beginning in verse 7. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. And there is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in with me to lie with me and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice, When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So so she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Behold, false accusation. Now the laws of ancient Egypt are consistent through the thousands of years of history. 
rape was to be treated with execution. That's how serious it was taken, and that would have been the legal charge against Joseph, attempted rape. But her words are different to the people around here. Go back to verse, is it 17? Yeah, she repeats it in verse 17. Then she spoke to him, that's her husband, Potiphar, with these words, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me, not to rape me, but to make sport of me. She had said it once before to all the people who were around her when she screamed. The word for sport is the word for like laughter. It's the word actually, the same word as you get the name Isaac. One of those onomonopoetic words where it sounds like what it is, Isaac, Isaac, Isaac. And uh, it has to do with really the idea that he came in to make me a laughingstock. She doesn't charge him like you'd think with what would normally be the most offensive thing that he had supposedly done, rape. She repeats it a second time to let you know then what her charge would have been against him. He came in here to make a laughingstock of me. So she was more concerned and more ashamed of having been made allegedly a laughingstock of than rather that she was the subject of an alleged attempted rape. Maybe that's why Joseph wasn't executed. We aren't told, but I think the inference is valuable. But what an accusation. When Joseph did everything right to maintain purity, and to make it worse, Potiphar believes his wife. Look at verse 19. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. An interesting passage in another text of Scripture, Psalm 105. And it comments on this, that as Joseph was put in prison, that, quote, his feet were hurt with fetters and his neck was put in a collar of iron. First, his feet were tortured. That could be that either he had uh, rings of iron around his ankles coming down upon his feet. That's quite possible. But it's actually his feet here, not his ankles, that are referenced quite specifically. It could be the typical torture that's done throughout that part of the world and still is done today to prisoners who are captured, where the individual is put on his back, his feet are lifted up, he is tied down, his feet are tied to a bar, and then the torturer comes along and with a cane or with some other tool, continues to wrap the bottom of the bare feet. And then the person is forced to walk. And this goes on for days and days and days. One of the most sensitive parts of our body. It also says in that passage in Psalm 105 that his neck was put in a collar of iron. How degrading. How painful. Anytime you needed to, you could simply just latch that collar of iron to something against the wall and the prisoner couldn't move and he had to hold himself up. 
Or you could simply put them in a chain gang and chain all the different prisoners together so that when you march them out to do their stuff, they are all held together like animals. So when you understand, the prison understand that the scriptural testimony of Joseph being in prison is not one of luxury. He's not watching Oprah during the afternoon along with his buddies. This is a place of torture. This becomes then the second time in their account now that Joseph has barely escaped being killed. Happened with his brothers and now it happens with the accusation. Why? Both times he has been innocent. Why is unjust punishment happening to Joseph? In fact, just kind of throw out the question here. And you feel this, don't you, personally, in your own lives? Where is God when this is happening? We even think, don't we, that God's job is to make sure that the righteous get blessed and the wicked get punished. Isn't that who God is? Isn't God responsible to vindicate the innocent and to expose sin? What is is going wrong here? Where is he? Let's admit it of ourselves, okay, that when injustice of a severe nature comes against you or comes against someone you love, your mind goes down this road. If he's all good, then why is there so much injustice and betrayal and suffering and sorrow and torture and death in his world if he's all good? You ever get angry with God? Why is there so much starvation in the world? Why do babies die of starvation? Why is there so much war in the world? You ever go there? Now, before you go out into the parking lot and slit your wrists over the injustice in the world, and please, would you please wait until you get to the parking lot? We want to keep the sanctuary clean. We need to remember some biblical truth. We need to remember some truth about the Lord. Let's see it in Joseph's life. Go to verse 21. Here it is. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made him to prosper. This is exactly what happened with Potiphar. Blessing, success. Joseph did it again. After the degradation of the false accusation, and after the downward spiral into whatever kind of despair his heart went into, he came back up out of it and pledged himself to do the same in jail that he had done when he was under Potiphar. Freedoms are taken away. Whatever freedoms he has as a slave, and those are limited, are they not? They are even less in prison. We don't need to be angry with God. Are you familiar with Isaiah, the 40th chapter? Do you not know? And have you not heard? 
the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Maybe you're going through false accusation even now. It's a remarkable thing. Here is Joseph in prison for false accusation. And God, who knows Joseph is innocent, doesn't furnish any proof to anybody of that innocence. But rather, his way of working is to show himself to Joseph, to prove himself to Joseph by working in his life. Instead of vindicating Joseph, which of course is what every one of us wants whenever a false accusation comes our way, it's instead God working in his life. Now, if any man living 4,000 years ago during this time had asked the question, what is God doing in the world today? I doubt anyone would have guessed that God is taking his most chosen, precious servant, putting him into prison under false accusation, and then working in his life to make him a blessing and a success in prison because of an end plan. People would have been thinking all about big and powerful governmental issues and things that involve lots of people and lots of money and lots of resources. And here's a man whose feet are in fetters, whose neck is in a chain. And trust in the Lord, the Lord's goodness, the Lord's grace, the Lord's kindness. I love what Charles Charles Haddon Spurgeon had to say. He said, if God offered you salvation, but the price of salvation, eternal life in glory with never again any pain, living forever and ever eternally in bliss, if the price of that was that for the rest of your life you can only drink water and only eat bread, would you accept it? And he said, of course you would. Of course you'd be a fool not to. And so... When you consider the goodness of God in giving you what he's given you, the freedom of salvation, the sheer grace of God in Jesus Christ, the sheer pledge, promise of of forgiveness of sins, and then, like here with Joseph in verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. And that's what God was doing. God is all-powerful. God could use his power to end suffering. God could end inequity in every area of of human endeavor. God could end disease. God could end death. God could remove every sorrow and every pain that you are going through today in an instant. And yet pain comes to us and we are severely tempted to distrust God because of the sorrows and the pains in our hearts. Obviously, if God was terribly concerned with you thinking that he's really, really wonderful, he'd never allow anything bad into your life, right? And so you'd be so happy all the time, whistling all every day, 
because God just blesses you and blesses you and makes life so sweet and pleasant for you. But instead, he actually, under his providential control and care and wisdom, brings into your life specific things that are aimed at striking your heart where no one else sees and bringing trial and temptation into your life and bringing you to the precipice of the threat of apostasy, if need be, in order that you understand what it means that the Lord is with you and blessing you in order that you come to know him. God doesn't run the world trying to vindicate himself in everybody's eyes, hoping that, oh, please come to believe in me. Please, I'm really, really good. I'm really a wonderful blesser of people. I'm so sorry the world is the way it is. As if God's greatest joy is to finally get people to trust him. Boy, if that's what God is doing in the world, he is a failure, isn't he? Real failure. Listen, God is eternal. Man is a moment. We don't judge God. But listen to this. Shockingly, God judges himself. God judges himself. God sends the son of his own right hand to earth. In order that, having lived a full life and carried out a full and expansive ministry in the land of Israel 2,000 years ago, God might judge himself. And thus comes the Passover Friday when this judgment must come to pass and we shall find out whether or not this God is all good and all powerful or whether these are just words written by sages from the bygone days. And the Son... Jesus Christ yields himself to the crucifiers. And they, with their spikes and with their hammers, begin the work of fastening his human body unto the cross. And God tells us in Scripture that what is put on that man on the cross is the full writ of our sins. And the soldiers, well, they begin to work on Jesus and fastening him to the cross. And this one is for lust. And this one is for your anger. And this one is for your pride. And this one is for your, your distrust and unbelief. And this one is for your arrogance. And this one is for your perversity. And this one down here on his feet is for your vileness. We identify with the soldiers. But God was actually judging himself. The word of God tells us very clearly that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. That it wasn't you and I there at the cross ultimately driving those nails into the flesh of Jesus Christ. But he who knew no sin had the nails being driven in providentially and by the judgment of God in order that God the Father might say you are forgiven and in order that God the Father might say reconciliation and justification and love and eternal mercy and you shall have eternal life and blessing forever as God pours out judgment upon himself so that man the sinner 
Man, the transgressor, might know that in God is all goodness and all power. I, God, declares, am from the beginning. And I know the end from the beginning. He puts himself on display for you and I to know him truly by his son dying on the cross so that we can exclaim in our hearts in order to say a word to our never-ending guilt and shame that God has judged God on the cross. There is redemption in the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. He is the one who did it. And then in great power raised Jesus from the dead three days later and vindicated the man who was fully, falsely accused of so many things. And we would receive absolvent from him that all the accusations against us, both false and true, would find forgiveness and resolution in him. God is not ignorant and foolish when it comes to false accusation. He's not ignorant and foolish when it comes to the sufferings of life that his people go through. He's actually intimately, intimately, intimately involved with it. This is the purpose for why Jesus came, in order that he might slay death and all that leads to death and lead his people home. And so, beloved, if you are in the place this morning or in this time of life, of a season of being falsely accused, I want you to know that you are in extremely good company, that the Lord your God is preparing you to be known like his son was on this world. And you have all the good reason to trust him. I suppose nothing quite hurts like false accusation, especially if you go out to serve the Lord in ministry. Job says this to his three friends. Friends, in quote. Job. Sorry, comforters, are you all? Is there no limit to windy words? Or what plagues you that you answer? I, too, could speak like you. If I were in your place, I could compose words against you and shake my head at you. After Job had lost all his family, all of his wealth, all of his health, these men come along, posing as comforters only to lay accusation after accusation against Job, every one of them false. What a severe and difficult trial. Would I be far off if I suggested to you that we Christians learn a lot more in the days of affliction than we do in the days of peace and calm? Jesus said a student is not above his teacher, and Jesus learned obedience in the things he suffered. And I I think ultimately it is in the school of adversity that we really, really learn to trust God, to trust him with the hard things, the painful things, the things that go on and on and aren't resolved. Robert Hamilton, wonderful British poet, wrote this. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, 
Not a word, said she, but oh, the things I learned from sorrow when sorrow walked with me. More often, there is no one to prove you are innocent when you are falsely accused. Most often, like Joseph, you sit in a prison, a seeming prison of guilt and suspicion. There is no one to come along and render a verdict of innocence. And if you try to tell people that you're innocent, that you're innocent, you just get mercilessly ignored. Strange, this way life is. And never in the story here of Joseph is there any evidence that Potiphar's wife got caught, that she ever came clean, she ever told the truth. Never. In other words, there was never any human vindication of Joseph above this specific charge. In the New Testament, the Jews of Jesus' time accused him of being the byproduct of an illegitimate fornication. I was reading a modern Jewish website. It said this, He was not the Son of God any more than we all are, precisely no more or less. The very thought is repugnant to a Jewish person. God having a son in that manner, we shudder at the suggestion. You know, there's one accusation that you and I must never shrink from, even in a martyrdom, being a Christian. Are you a Christian? Will you worship Jesus Christ alone? And have no other gods before him. We must say yes to this. We must resolve our hearts and our minds and our thoughts. That he and he alone must be our God. Not our paycheck. Not our house. Not our spouse. Not our friends. Not our self-esteem. But he and he alone must be our God. I will serve him and him alone. Even to the point of martyrdom. Well this all is the second of three trials in Joseph's life. The first was the betrayal by his brothers. This one is the trial of false accusation. And all of this, listen, is preparing him for trial number three. This is the neglect of Joseph. His neglect. The being ignored. The being forgotten. Let's read chapter 40. Verse 1, then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended, that's the word sinned, ha-ta-ta-ta, they sinned against their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, so he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, we have had a dream and there was no one to interpret it. 
And then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was, in fact, kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should have put me in prison in the dungeon. Well, when the chief cupbaker, chief baker, saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. And the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off you. Have a nice day. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the, chief, of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This hurts. This, this hurts. If it isn't enough being falsely accused of rape... This is hard, being forgotten, left in prison. I did prison ministry for years out in Southern California at a place called the Supermax. Almost everybody I ministered to said the same thing. I've been falsely accused. Can you imagine how many stories of innocence Joseph heard when he was all those years in prison? And his story of innocence was just one among thousands. Sounded like the others falsely accused her. Yeah, right. Yours is just a he said, she said. So where is the justice in all of this, I ask you? The cupbearer gets vindicated. He gets exonerated. He gets his name cleared. By the same day, he's putting the cup back in Pharaoh's hand. But Joseph stays in the prison, forgotten. Wow. In fact, if you go back to verse 14, Joseph says to the man, only keep me in mind. The word is remember, and I wish they translated it remember. Only remember me when it goes well with you. Such an important word. And it's emphatic in the Hebrew. Remember me 
And you can feel Joseph yearning to get out of the prison. Look at verse 15. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I've done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. In other words, I'm innocent of the charge of rape. And then if you go down to verse 23, look at this, it's used two times. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Both of those are off the word remember. It's a double thing. He didn't only just, you know, not remember Joseph. He also forgot him. (laughs) Wow. That's just hard. And, and, And as you're reading this, do you feel that kind of the whole idea of arbitrariness among men, among how men's estates and lots in life are carried out? One guy dies, another lives. They both seem to have done the same crime according to the first verse. They sinned, they offended Pharaoh somehow. It's all part of the trial of neglect. Feeling disposable. Joseph is like a razor blade. Are men disposable? In the world of men, yes, they are. Yes, they are. Pharaoh kills one and lifts up another on his birthday, according to verse 20. Woohoo, let's celebrate. Talk about men being treated like they have no value. And this is why you and I need God so very much. Because apart from God, our lives are almost like they have no value. Some of us will have a headstone at the end of our days if the Lord tarries. And then within a very short time, there will be nobody left to ever remember what that name represents and means. We are small. We need God. But before that time, what a trial this neglect is, especially when it comes like it does here at the hand of God, to be forgotten, to be ignored. It strikes such a blow at our inner yearning to want to be honored and to want to be esteemed, to want to be loved and valued. When God allows you to be treated as a disposable razor, he's allowing you to experience what his son experienced. Isaiah 53, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Oh, one of the beauties of Jesus Christ, beloved, is that he accepted it and came to earth fully knowing that he who was worthy of all honor was actually going to receive none, and yet it mattered not to him. So different. To be neglected is to be almost like you're dead while you're yet alive. The forgotten man is a dead man to the world. He has no value anymore. Nobody gives him a call. Nobody wants to talk to him. He has no significance, no value to others. And please remember the reason why Joseph has this trial of neglect is because God gave him the interpretation of the dreams. Joseph knew God wanted him to stay in neglect, to not be remembered He wanted Joseph to feel it. God gave him the interpretation of the dreams so that the one man could be restored and forget. The hand of providence. 
We must believe, don't we, that when we are in that place of neglect that God yet has a purpose for our lives and that it is important and that it is valuable and that our life could not have its true meaning that it was predestined to have unless we went through the trial of neglect that God brings us. In the years to come, in Joseph's life, a famine would grip the world and most people would feel neglected, forgotten, worthless, insignificant, abandoned, on the edge of death. And Joseph would be no callous government servant, merely checking the time, shuffling his feet, keeping one eye on the clock. But every soul who came before him was important. No one was neglected. The scriptures are very clear how he took care of everybody in the chapters that will follow. He would save a nation. He would save more than a nation. He would save people and nations apart from him because of his wisdom and, frankly, because he went through this awful trial of neglect. It's a tough trial. Joseph interprets two dreams perfectly, but those interpretations became his torture because he had to stay in prison remembering, God gave me those. And in fact, as I look at this, if you're like me, as I look at verse 23, the cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. I have to almost think there's something satanic in there. How can you forget the person who interpreted the dream by which you were reestablished to the service of the king? How do you forget that? I don't know how you can humanly do that. And yet the man does. So pity Joseph in prison. But remember that the person who keeps Joseph in prison is God. It keeps him in the trial of neglect. It's a severe trial. Well, look at verse 40. Look at chapter 41. Look at how long it went on for. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. Oop, we'll get there next time. But think about how long this trial went on for. 24 months. Day after day, Joseph would look up at the sky and watch the sun cross it from one end to the other. Reminded of the glory and power of God in creation and reflect to himself, am I forgotten by the God who makes the sun go back and forth? No. Because one day, God knew, God, Joseph knew and trusted that God, was going, that God was going to raise him up and deliver him from the trial. And we need that great hope. We need the hope that God has a purpose for us in our trials. And God provides that abundantly in his word. Oh, that we might come to know God in a deeper way. Oh, that we might be conformed to Christ as though that were the one jewel our souls could not do without. And it is. And Joseph has all the power. Joseph has all the money. Joseph has all the grain. What will he do with it? Well, he'll be the man sifted and pure who will give it out wisely. One old Christian, and I want to close with this, wrote this a number of years ago, and I think it's valuable. He said this, when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man to play the noblest part, 
when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks, when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and which every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out God knows what he's about. And so with you, let's pray. Oh, heavenly, almighty Father, in great glory and honor, we praise you. Acknowledge your power and sovereign hand among the men and women of this world and upon our own lives. All good and all powerful you are, worthy of our trust from the heart. Unto you, O beloved God, we render praise and honor and glory and acknowledge that it was good for us that we were afflicted so we might maintain our path according to your word. We love and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.